This episode of The Zealous Podcast is sponsored by Perform Better. Perform Better is the leader in functional training by supplying innovative products and top-notch education to trainers, coaches, and therapists. Check out the brand new Perform Better app designed for professionals who want to stay on top of their game. This free app features education from the world's best. You'll learn from industry leaders including Mike Boyle, Gray Cook, Sue Falzoni, Charlie Weincroft, and many more. Topics range from strength and conditioning, program design, nutrition, business, and marketing. Just go to performbetter.com. Welcome back to another episode of the Zealous Podcast. I'm Rocky Snyder, and we're turning the tables away from baseball right now. I know the season just began, and we've had some folks on strength conditioning world from Mariners and the Giants and whatnot, but we're going to change our gear a little bit and go to the NFL because I've got John Griffin with me now. John and I actually happened to go to UMass Amherst, not together. It was years apart, but we're fellow alumni, so I got that kind of connection with him. Uh, however, he played for the Jets, and I'm a Pats fan, as you can tell by the balls behind me. So I, I, I know we've got some love, but there's a love-hate relationship I can feel brewing already. I'm going to try and keep that down. But uh, John is actually one of the strength conditioning coaches for the LA Rams. So without further ado, hey, John, welcome to Zealous. Glad to be here, man. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You too. You too. Now, uh, we were talking a little bit before the show, born in Texas, but moved up to Massachusetts and became a mass hole like myself, which is, you know, it, it takes a certain breed to really embody that. And uh, we'll find out if you have that. But uh, you went to Nor Northeastern. You were a Husky for a few years, but then you, you transferred to UMass. What was that all about? So uh, I played at Northeastern and then, you know, went three years there, my third year um, individually had a really good season, but I think as a team uh, financially, just playing in the city of Boston uh, just wasn't a long-term thing. And uh, we had a meeting with our AD and he kind of voiced to us that they were going to, you know, shut down the, the football program. I think Hofstra followed shortly after. Mm -hmm. So it was heart crushing for a lot of guys, saw their, their collegiate dreams end and I was fortunate enough that UMass came out and, and gave me another home and I consider myself a UMass alum. Nice. So that, and that was your senior year, right? You, you got a scholarship over there. Yep. My senior year. Yep. So I got a scholarship to Northeastern and got canceled and then got a scholarship to UMass. And broke a few records at UMass being a minute man there. So that attracted some attention with the NFL, but uh, you were a un undrafted free agent yeah. with the Bengals. Yep. Yep. So I uh, just had to kind of get it out the mud, man. You know, you know, like every other college football player thought I was going to get drafted. Uh, didn't happen. I was a priority free agent. So I had an opportunity to go to a couple organizations. Uh, me and my agent sat down and felt like the Bengals gave me the best chance to, to make the roster. Uh, spoke to the running back coach, uh, ended up going to Cincinnati and, and giving it a run there. And ultimately that didn't work out. I ended up getting released after the last preseason game. Uh, and then I got on with the, with the Jets. In between, there was a little World League football, I understand. Yeah, yeah. there's a little startup league called UFL. Uh, I went to, to Omaha, Nebraska, and played for the, the called the Omaha Mammoths. Uh, so that, 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 was, that was an interesting experience. How so? What do you mean? Uh, just a league of journeymen, you know what I mean? We had uh, I played with uh, Maurice Claret, who was a guy that was trying to get back into the NFL at the time. Uh, a lot of older guys, a lot of younger guys. So it was just a collection of just journeymen trying to either get back into football or get back into the NFL. Uh, I think we're practicing at like a little YMCA center, living in an apartment complex down the street. So it, it almost felt like the JUCO of professional football. Uh, but, but it was an awesome experience, man. And, you know, I, I, I came from a small school, FCS, UMass. So for me, 
it was just ball. So it gave me an opportunity to get back on in the NFL. So it worked out. I'm curious with that though, before we get onto the strength and conditioning world, because I definitely want to delve into that for most of the time, but I, when you got a group of guys that are hungry for, for trying to make it up into the big league and they're playing there, would you say that there was more drive, more attitude than actually being in the NFL or am I off there? Um, I, I wouldn't say that. I would say that um, everybody was focused and we were all like-minded and going in the same direction. I would say when you're in an NFL locker room, um, obviously everybody has the mentality that they want to win as a team and win as an organization. But, you know, specific guys have specific things going on, whether it be, you know, contract negotiations, uh, you know, I don't know if I'm going to get re-signed, you know, so there's a lot more individual things on that nature. Whereas when I was in Omaha, it, it felt like everybody was on the same goal. Like, you know, if we do what we got to do, we put in the work, you know, we'll get to where we want to go. Interesting. A lot more team-based philosophy yep. mentality. I got you. Okay. So then you move on to the Jets and... Was it the last preseason game you got tackled there? Yeah. So uh, I had my first stint with the Jets. Uh, so that was my second year with the Jets. My first year with the Jets actually had a high ankle sprain in camp. And oh. I ended up getting released and went back to Omaha under uh, Joe Moglia, who's the head coach at uh, – I forgot where he was at. You remember Joe Moglia? I remember the name, but I couldn't tell you where he is. Coastal Carolina. There we go. Boom. Yeah, so he was coaching there. So I uh, was there for maybe a month and a half before the Jets called me back. So I got back on with the Jets, uh, played in my first actual game in Buffalo. And then going into that next year, um, off-season training camp, preseason, in the first preseason game against the Detroit Lions, uh, broke my ankle uh, up on the sideline on a horse collar tackle. Uh, yeah. And that, that pretty much spelled the end of your NFL career? Uh, for the most part, I spent the year rehabbing and, uh, you know, just the change in management obviously, obviously didn't help as well. Uh, coach Rex Ryan was the head coach and uh, Mike Tannenbaum was our GM. And, you know, during my time in IR, there was a big transition from that. So I think John Isaac came in uh, and we made a, a switch at head coach as well. So a lot of that turnover just, you know, didn't, I wasn't really part of that regimen. So for them, they wanted to see some more recent film of me and with me being IR, I just didn't have it. So their suggestion was, you know, to either go back to one of the startup leagues or do the CFL route. And at that point, you know, football started to become more transactional for me. You know what yeah. I mean? It started to become more about, you know, dollar bills and, you know, how can I continue to make money? And it just, the fun started to come out of it. So I figured at that point, it was time for me to just go a different route. And so what was that different route? Because it's quite unique. I mean, I talked to a lot of strength conditioning consultants and coaches uh, in the, the major leagues, in the pro sports world, as well as outside in, in the general population and so on. But there aren't too many guys sort of who have been NFL athletes that turn around and become certified strength conditioning coaches or, or specialists. What was that all about? Uh, so I'd always had an interest in fitness, even in my time in the uh, NFL, uh, but I never really looked at it from a strength and conditioning lens. It was more so, uh, I'd say bodybuilding, high intensity interval training, you know, things just to, to look good with a shirt off. Sure. Uh, and then once I started to kind of dig deep into the, the, the science behind it and the evidence-based practices and how you can actually push the needle on performance, it kind of made me wonder, like, I wonder had I been doing some of this stuff or had I been, you know, um, going through some of these programs or I had a coach that was putting me through this, maybe it may have extended my NFL career. Maybe it would have been put me in a situation where I, I would have got drafted higher. You know what I'm saying? Like, so I started thinking about all these things. And as I, I dug into it, I kind of just went down a rabbit hole and just wanted to go somewhere where I could learn it. 
And the more I learned about that performance aspect of it, uh, the more I got enamored with it and decided, you know, this is, this is ultimately what I want to do. And so where did you pursue this? I mean, where, where did you start out? Yep. So I started at Baylor University. Uh, at the time, we had drafted a running back in, in uh, New York named Terrence Ganaway, who's a really good friend of mine. We were roommates uh, for training camp. And I'm from Texas, and he was from Texas, and I was home at the time. And he, uh, he invited me to come hang out with him. So I, I drove up to Waco, and he was getting a, a lift in. So I went into the weight room and, you know, the, the environment and there was like, like no environment I had ever experienced before. And it was awesome. And I was like, you know, Hey man, introduce me to you guys as head strength and conditioning coach. So I introduced, he introduced me to Kaz Kazadi, who's a big mentor of mine and just kind of exposed me, him and his staff exposed me to the performance realm. Just, you know, a, a, a team of people that the, the emphasis was driving athletic performance and pushing the needle in that aspect. And I decided that's what I wanted to do. And uh, he gave me an opportunity to internship, and that's how it got started. Fantastic. Now, what was it that blew you away when you walked in the room? I mean, you go into a common gym or yep. workout facility, you got squat racks, barbells, and dumbbells or whatever, maybe a rack of kettlebells and some cardio equipment. What was it there that you just went, are you kidding me? It was the vibe, man. It was the vibe. Uh, the, the music was so loud, you could barely talk, you could barely hear. It was, it was controlled chaos. Um, the intent behind the, the movements the guys were doing, um, you could just smell competition in the air. I'm a competitor at heart. You know, uh, I love that. I love that feel. It's what I think made me a good athlete. So you could just see guys competing on the rack. Um, you could see a feel for the room. You could hear the music blasting. It was just, you know, where I had come from, that's not what strength and conditioning was to me. It was always, you know, on the whistle, quiet, down, up, next set. And, you know, that's just what I had come accustomed to what strength and conditioning was. And, and I came in here and, and guys are having a good time. Guys are lifting their asses off and competing on the rack. And I was like, man, I, I wanted to get a lift in. Right on. So how long did you stay with Baylor? So I was at Baylor for two years. Uh, I interned there and they gave me an opportunity to become full-time. So I joined the full-time staff there uh, in 2015. And after I left Baylor, I had got a call from uh, Coach Muschamp and Coach Dillman in South Carolina who gave me a full-time job opportunity to go uh, coach in the SEC. So I thought, you know, this is going to be good for me to, to branch off and experience a different business model of football um, in what I believe is the premier um, division in college football. So just the, the opportunity to go to South Carolina and experience that was huge for me. Wow. Okay. So Clemson and South Carolina, big names in the world yeah. of, of college sports. I mean, it doesn't get much bigger, honestly. And so their, their coffers are pretty full, pretty deep yep. pockets. So you're yep. talking like state-of-the-art technology, equipment. I mean, you were just, you dove in head first yep. into some amazing, amazing stuff. What's, what are some of the things that blew you away when you got to South Carolina? Uh, just the facilities, man. Just the, the, the capacity to, to service so many athletes at one time, the amount of racks we had, the amount of space we had, the indoor facility, uh, just the bells and whistles kind of blew you away. And, and like you said, just the budget there for, for food capacity, just, you know, everything that you could possibly want as an athlete is, is there. So, you know, just putting athletes in the best situation possibly successful. You really have no excuse. Well, I, it makes sense from my perspective why you would do what you're doing, because you go from one team environment into another team environment, but it's the team of coaches. Yeah. So. So transitioning from a team of players into the team of coaches, what was that like? Um, I, I think it was similar. I think coaches are kind of wired the same. I think at the end of the day, we're all competitors and that's why we play this game. Uh, and that's why we coach in this game. 
Um, the biggest thing was just coming there from a, a, a player's perspective. I think sometimes when you're a coach for an extended period of time, you kind of get away from that. And majority of coaches played at some point or another in their career, but you start coaching a while and you get away from, you know, the mindset of an athlete. And uh, sometimes it's not about the information. It's about how you package the information. And I felt like coming, coming into the realm with a, the mindset of a, of a former player and being able to kind of bridge that gap, I think set me apart and kind of gave me a niche early on to, to, to fit in. Yeah, I, I imagine that's quite the advantage when you can relate and communicate on a, a much deeper level to, to the athletes there. So some of the best coaching advice just you've ever received, and not to sound uh, immodest, but what do you feel like is the best coaching advice that you tend to give? Uh, number one would just be be yourself. Uh, you see a lot of examples of success in this industry and specific personalities or specific training styles or philosophies. And a lot of times you see guys, you know, we'll try to mimic that to get the same results, but I think it comes off as disingenuine. Uh, so the, the first piece of advice that I've always gotten is just be yourself. And that's always gonna, gonna transcend and get you to where you need to go. And uh, the second piece of, of advice is, is, a, is a little unorthodox that I got from a mentor was, uh, you know, go for the bank job. And at surface level, you know, everyone's like, you know, what does that mean? Uh, you know, so when you're talking about taking down a bank, uh, and this is obviously from a movie called Heat is where I got it from. Uh -huh. uh, it's a very calculated process. It's not something you do overnight. You know, I mean, you don't just get off the couch and say, you know, we're going to take down the bank. There's a lot of logistics. There's a lot of thought process. It's a long term game. Um, there's a lot of people involved. Um, everyone has a job to do and everybody's got to be on point with what they're doing. So when you're talking about developing an athlete, um, we're not trying to put guys in microwaves. We're not trying to get something, you know, in two, three weeks, we're thinking about like, what's the long game? What's the end development? What's the, the, the best practice of doing this? That's quite a turnaround from say uh, 15, 20 years ago when it was just, hey, let's, if you were a running back in the nineties, we're just going to get you to get as many yardage and we'll just, <laughs> you're disposable. You, yeah. you, we just chew you up, spit you out because there's another one right behind you. So when we're talking about long-term athletic development, which is a, it's a phrase that we're hearing more and more LTAD. How is it that uh, like in the college sector with you and the other team of coaches, how do you develop that long-term athletic development with a player that's only going to be with you for say four or five years? Yeah. Uh, I think the first part is one, you have to address the human aspect of it. And a, a lot of people skip right over that and go right into the physical side of it. But at the end of the day, uh, you know, we're dealing with human beings and these are relationships with people. So first and foremost is somebody's parents are, are, are dropping their child off into a foreign place that he's never been before with a bunch of people he's never met. And they're entrusting that you're going to have their best interest. So before I ask a kid, you know, to put 500 pounds on his back or wake up at six in the morning and, and run a thousand yards of, of, you know, whatever yardage, I got to develop a relationship with the kid first, because this is going to be the fundamental, the fundamental base of which we build on for the next couple of years to come so that he understands that, you know, I have his best interest in mind. So whenever we're speaking about development, I think the relational, relational relationship aspect of it is huge. Uh, and that's what you first got to develop. Um, from then on out, I think, you know, you got to not take a cookie cutter approach and figure out, all right, moving on from a human aspect, you know, what sport does this guy play? Obviously, ours is football. And what position does he play? You know, what is he being asked to do to be successful at his position? So that requires a certain level of communication with the sport coach. Um, you know, where do you see this guy in the role in the offense? You know, what do you see him doing? How do you see him contributing to this team? Uh, and once you figure that out, okay, this is the angle we're going to take to develop this kid. 
Yeah, I can see that in the college realm, as well as in the NFL, talking to other strength coaches, there's a lot of meetings that take place uh, preseason and in-season, postseason. And yep. you're constantly communicating with this team of coaches. Yeah, I mean, oh, with let's just go to the Rams and we'll come back to college. But right now, you've, you've got four strength conditioning coaches on the Rams. You've got a team dietitian. You've got a sports scientist. You've got a director of performance. I mean, you've got a, a huge team that is just devoted to sports medicine and pro- performance. I mean, yep. What is that like? I, yeah. You're just, uh, yeah. It's awesome, man. It's awesome. And I say it all the time. Uh, I haven't really felt like this, you know, since I've been an intern is you're learning from everyone is you're surrounded by a group of professionals and everyone's an expert in what they do um, across the board in any room you walk in and everyone has a, a, a different upbringing and a different philosophy for where they came from. So there's just a lot of great ideas. So really it's a lot of collaboration. It's a lot of teamwork and it's a lot of sitting down and figuring out, you know, what's the best idea? What's the best, uh, you know, practice, what's the best application for this guy, for this team, for this position moving forward and what's going to get us the best results. Sure. Oh, I can see one of the big differences and you can tell me if I'm right or wrong here between college and pros is that the college you've got athletes that they're just going to listen to everything you say and do exactly what you tell them to do, but you suddenly move up into the NFL and you've got some veteran players that have been doing it a certain way for a long time. And here you come in, trying to tell them something it's it's going to be a different kind of communication style isn't it yeah so the the, the way I compare it is in, in college it's a lot more communication and when I say communication it's more so you know me giving you uh the directions for what I'm asking you to do um and for the most part that that is what it is um and an NFL level it's more conversation um so you know you're kind of going into a situation with a lot of tools in your belt you know how's a guy feel today um Maybe, you know, this is 10th year in the league. He had a meniscus repair last season, a, a knee surgery year four, um, an ACL in college. So those are things you got to be aware of. And there's a lot more of a conversational aspect of, uh, you know, what's the best modality to get what we're trying to get out of this guy today. So it's a lot more conversation than it is communication. And where do you fall in terms of your role to return to sport? Like in terms of post rehab, rehab, strength conditioning. I mean, it's, it's a transitional kind of spectrum there. And where do you see yourself? Um, I think we're just, you know, the whole staff is, as a whole is kind of ebb and flow through all of that. I think NFL is kind of one big return to play block. And I say that because, you know, everyone's always going to be hurt in some form or fashion, whether they're pushing through something or it's some sort of injury. So I think it's honestly like a very big return to play block. So I don't really segment it up or silo it into like, you know, this guy's straight return to play, this guy's performance. Uh, and I think as a staff collaboratively, the vibe that I've gotten from, from the Rams organization is we all kind of like got a hand in that. It's not just, you know, hey, you're the return to play guy or this guy handles this or you're the speed guy. Um, everything we do is a collaborative approach. Everything we do is, um, you know, evidence-based practice. There's a lot of uh, smart individuals there in the room that are going to figure out what's the best tool uh, for this for this individual. So in the time that you were doing strength conditioning as a player yourself to now, whether it's in the college realm, where a lot of information is created and a lot of research is done and passed into the pros or the in the NFL itself, what, what are the major changes or adjustments that you've seen in regards to program design and strength conditioning uh, when you were a player compared to the players right now? 
Yeah. Uh, I would just say the, the, uh, a system of checks and balances, periodizing volume, periodizing intensity, um, just as a player, you know, the way that we're wired, especially as a football player is, you know, to leave it all on the field. And you hear that a lot, um, you know, 110%, you'll hear a lot of phrases like that. So, you know, as a player, I was going to go a hundred miles per hour until I couldn't go anymore day in and day out. And my body was going to tell me when it was time to shut down because it probably was my body shutting down. Uh, you know, so the biggest change that I've learned is just, you know, once you get in strength and conditioning and start learning the application behind everything, just learning how to, you know, undulate a training cycle or periodizing or, you know, whether we want to go a linear periodization, just figuring out ways to best put an athlete uh, in situations to peak and taper when they need to taper. Okay. I love that we can talk about periodization. So what are the parameters what are, what are the metrics that you typically use to determine when to tweak the mesocycle, the microcycle, any part of the periodization? Yeah, so uh, it, it, it's really, you know, we're spoiled here. I'm spoiled at the Rams. I've also spoiled at South Carolina as well. Just being able to have access to so many modalities to put, put that into context. So uh, a phrase that I, I've come upon is it's called comorbidity, which is kind of like, you know, you don't typically fall from one issue, it's typically a lot of issues that cause this. So when we're looking at athletes that have got something going on, maybe they're, they're slowing down or they're looking like they're hurt, you know, you're going to cross-reference a lot of different tools to figure out what's going on. So whether it's like, you know, a catapult, am I looking at, you know, is a guy's player load too high? Is a guy's high speed yardage down? I'm looking at RPEs. Um, we'll go in the weight room and say, how many reps did we prescribe? Um, nutritionally, you know, what is this guy's body fat looking like? Is this guy losing weight? Is he trending downwards? So when you see a lot of those metrics start to pop up, it kind of gives you a sign to put things into context to say, well, you know what, maybe it's time for this athlete to start tapering off. Do you also throw in the filters of, okay, this is structural or biomechanic. This is chemical based in terms of the fueling and this, or this yeah. is mental, emotional, like we've got to get the sports psychology involved here. Yeah. Yeah, so I think that a lot of that is the art of coaching. Uh, you know, a lot of that some people can say is subjective, but I think that that's where the experience comes in of kind of knowing your players. And unless you have a baseline of what a guy's baseline is, you're never truly going to be able to tell whether he's off of that. Uh, so when you put all those metrics into play, you can kind of, you know, get at that. Maybe this guy is stressed out or on a collegiate level or shoot in the NFL level, this dude broke up with his significant other last week and it's really getting to him. On top of that, he just bombed a test. Um, on top of that, you know, 32% of our volume over, over our cycle is this week as well. And, you know, he's been trending down in body weight. So now we have multiple metrics uh, to, to, to put together and figure out, all right, let's figure out the best, best protocol moving forward for this athlete. And you do that collaboratively, I imagine, with the other coaches, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that, that, that is not a one-man gang, man. Uh, you know, that, that takes a lot of people being on the same page. A lot of people meeting and, and just having a general understanding of, you know, how we're going to operate as a performance staff. Yeah, honestly, I remember my early days actually going through UMass and working as a line cook. And, yeah. uh, and you're working with some other guys behind the line and the orders are coming in and you're having to coordinate all these different ingredients together at one. I mean, you've got so many different ingredients <laughs> that you're dealing with and you're trying to make the best buffet imaginable that's going to be more tasty and, and, and delicious than any other team around. So when it comes to tech, like you're not that far away from Silicon Valley, I'm just over the mountains here in Santa Cruz, but uh, when it comes to that, do you guys have those horn rim geeks in, with the computers sitting in some quiet room, taking all those metrics in and then spitting out some kind of report for you? 
I think we are the geeks, man, honestly. Uh, <laughs> and I think that that's kind of why I fit in so well is that the end of the day, I think all of us are interested in those things. Uh, and if we're working, you know, we're looking at a lot of that stuff. And if we're not, we're talking to people that are looking at that stuff. So a lot of that, 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 that tech information is going to come from our applied performance side. Tyler Williams does a really good job with it for the Rams. But for the most part, everyone in the, in the uh, building has a background of some sort in it uh, where they were at. So I think we're all kind of crunching those numbers and we're all looking at it and figuring out what trends we can pull from it. And what's the little gremlin that's hiding in the dark corners of the closet that no one typically pays attention to that is one of the biggest elements or the, in terms of like when you're looking at all those elements we're just talking about, what's the one that surprises you the most that has a great impact on the players when before you wouldn't have even have a, considered it? Yeah, uh, I would say that the force plate stuff is starting to creep up um, and it's it's been kind of new the last couple of years and and that's something that I've, you know, tried to wrap my mind around and learn a lot. But, you know, a lot of people are doing jump tests, counter movement jumps, uh, just kind of getting baseline on specific guys and seeing, you know, when they start to stray off of that. But I, I really do like that as a modality, not not just for readiness and return to play, but also bucketing athletes and, and finding different ways to train them. You know, seeing is like, is this guy lacking in RSI or ability to create power fast or is this guy, you know, lacking in peak power? Um, so you can kind of get a gauge of what guys, you know, superpowers are and what their weaknesses are, and it gives you more of a fine-tuned approach to training. Yeah, force plates have become huge. I mean, honestly, it seems like every week I'm talking to somebody, uh, whether it's the Mariners or the Giants, both yeah. those guys we were talking about force plates. I've got one here. I don't use it a lot with the athletes <laughs> like you guys do. I've, I've got the you know, the seniors that are just trying to stay on their feet and they're, they're in a lot of pain. So we use it for that, but it, it has so many uh, far reaches that you can use it for. Now in, in regards to the Rams, you guys are using the power plate for jump testing for loaded lifts. Are there other things that you're doing with it? Uh, I mean, there's so many things you can look at it. I would attribute it to early on like catapult data. I mean, the sky's the limit for what you want to look at. It's just a matter of, you know, you got the kitchen sink, at your hand, but like, what, what are we looking at and what's going to drive performance? So I think, you know, as an organization, we're, we're still trying to fine tune, you know, what are the main metrics that we want to look at and what, what are the things that our data is pointing towards that can push performance and, and show an accurate display of readiness for us. Now, I know there's other techs like the wearable technology that's going to look at heart rates, HRV, sleep patterns, yeah. you know, all this stuff. And, and I know with the players union, uh, only if they give you permission, will they share that information with you. But I, I imagine there's quite a few players that do that uh, within the pro level. But I'm curious, when it came to like Baylor or South Carolina, were you guys using that too? And how does the NCAA's guidelines kind of regulate that? Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I think that's open territory. It's a lot of blue water. A lot of people have a lot of that stuff and don't really know what they're looking at yet. Um, I would say at Baylor, we did it a lot more. We had a pretty, pretty sharp team of individuals. Uh, Andrew Altoff was the guy heading that up. He now does it for the Carolina Panthers. Uh, Chris Roof was also kind of helping out with that. And he's the director at Baylor right now. Uh, but just getting a feel for the catapult stuff and how that, that fits into play and, the, and then cross-referencing it with the RPEs. And then uh, we had this thing called TMG that would also measure a lot of things. But we were just, I think, I think Baylor was kind of ahead of its time with those guys in that building. Uh, South Carolina, we were big on catapult data. Uh, so the catapult was a, was a big metric that, that we had an insight to look at. 
But I think from a technology standpoint, you can kind of get lost in the shuffle if you start, you know, looking at too much stuff. Um, it'll pull you in too many directions and get you away from at the end of the day. Like there's really no substitute for the work that you got to put in. Yeah. 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 By all means. So we definitely can have a problem seeing the forest through the trees. Yeah. Comes to looking at all that data. And so, like you say, it just, at the end of the day, it comes down to, can they move well and can they do it over a period of time with the, the most explosiveness, the efficiency, yeah. or can they hit the hardest or whatever the case is. So what is that you're looking forward to this season with the Rams coming up? I mean, obviously we've got an extra game that was just announced. That's, that's pretty exciting. 17 regular season games with the NFL. That's that kind of makes me scratch my head with injury <laughs> rates and whatnot, but that's all right. But what are you looking forward to? Uh, personally, just growth, learning, uh, being a part of a team. Uh, obviously I wouldn't be here if I didn't plan on winning the Super Bowl. I think organizational, that's a goal for us. Uh, and, and we're serious about that. So the biggest thing is, is, is going to be winning, uh, but just learning, learning every single day, man, just creating an atmosphere in which I can learn, you know, the NFL model, be around pros, uh, be around pros in the weight room, but as well as, you know, on the team and just, you know, picking and pulling things from those guys' brains. What have you learned this week? A ton, man. A ton. Uh, <laughs> I learn something new every single week, man. Uh, just organizational stuff, uh, ways, ways to train athletes. I went down and talked to Daniel Martinez. He's at Trinity University right now. Uh, but just a very bright guy who was talking about some force plate stuff. And he gave me a really cool analogy that, you know, I had never really thought about. Um, just so you don't lose train of like, you know, at the end of the day, we are training athletes and you want to train them from a lens of their sport of play. And he likened to, to like a, a, a tiger. When you're going to study a tiger, you're going to study a tiger in the zoo. Uh, you're going to see it in its nature. I mean, you're going to study a tiger outside of the zoo. It's going to be in its nature. It's going to be hunting. It's going to be in the jungle. You don't want to study the tiger in the zoo because it's not of his nature. And he feels like a lot of times the strength and conditioning coaches, you know, we'll put guys on the force place. We'll put guys through, uh, you know, a few genetics test or we'll put guys through whatever. And they perform within this box. And we use that as an indicator to say, okay, now they're going to perform here. But I think we have to, you know, take it apart and look at them within their level of play. And I kind of picked that up from him. And I, I really did like that analogy. Uh, and I think sometimes we can lose that train of thought. Specificity of training, right? Yeah. 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 Uh, you must be just in like hog heaven here, like a kid in the candy <laughs> store. Honestly. Yeah, man, it's awesome. It's awesome. I, I'm not going to lie. It's awesome. That's great. Okay. So, uh, you know, strength conditioning coach, then... What, where else do you want to go with that? Like athletic trainer certification? Uh, honestly, I, I like the performance side of it, man. To be honest with you, at the end of the day, I could see myself, you know, just overseeing it. I think there's not a lot of exposure right now for what that looks like uh, for our industry. Um, I know there's a couple people doing it. Pat Ivey's doing it at Louisville. Uh, Jay Agabo just took a spot in California somewhere. But just, you know, people that have a background within the performance model that are managing and hiring. Uh, a lot of times our, our field and the positions in our field are hired by people that don't really, you know, understand the ins and outs of strength and conditioning or have never worked in it hands on. So I think there's always, you know, a little bit of a disconnect for what that looks like. There's a disconnect for, you know, an auditing system. Uh, so I, I think that I could see myself transitioning in that role when it's all said and done. Right on. Okay. When it comes to assessing players, what are the main go-tos that you guys are doing uh, is joint by joint approach? Are there screening modalities? What, what's, you know, without giving any trade secrets away, because I, I just, what is it you guys are doing? 
Yeah, I mean, I think everybody has their own screening process and a lot of people use third party companies. Uh, a lot of people, you know, especially in the NFL, Fusionetics, FMS, uh, we have kind of an in-house screening protocol, but without getting too specific into it, like the main things we're gonna be looking at are obviously the knee, hip and the ankle. Uh, and, you know, how those three things move as well as, you know, thoracic spine. So just kind of, you know, judging where guys are at and in, in each specific region of that. Uh, obviously in the multiple planes and, you know, sagittal, frontal and transverse to see how guys move in that and uh, see where guys' weaknesses are. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, you know, if a guy's not really bending well in the ankles, you know, doesn't have much ankle flexion, you know, is it coming more from the knee? Is he tend to hinge more at the hip? Um, you know, if a guy doesn't have a lot of thoracic mobility, you know, where is he compensating? And just kind of building profiles off of that of what guys need to maybe supplement in the weight room or stay away from or do more of. And are you doing these assessments while they're lifting? Is it just uh, uh, movements? No, you know, I, I think pretty much every program is the same. And, you know, I, I'm not sure about the NFL, but on a collegiate level, you know, most of the time when the guys come in, they will have a period to assess. And that's typically when you get all the guys back on campus or in the building. Uh, there typically be a, a certain amount of time dedicated towards, you know, some people allocate that time for their conditioning test or an assessment. So that's typically the time we'll do that. But I think it's a year on process. Uh, sure. You know, you're constantly revisiting those things to see if they're improving or not improving. Okay. Now we got the combines coming up in a couple months here. Yeah. And uh, how are you guys, what do you have to do to prepare for the combine? Uh, for us, not much, man. I think that's more on the scouting side uh, in the NFL. You know what I mean? So I know right now, a lot of those guys are training for a 225 test vert bench in, in 40. Uh, so I think the biggest thing in my head is once they come in is we got to start training for the sport of football. So what, yeah, I was going to say, what do you think about that? The combine, like the, the movements, I, I got to say for me personally, they feel archaic. I, yeah. First of all, if you're laying on the ground and you're having to push 225 pounds repetitively, you're yeah. on the wrong side of the, the scrum, my man. Yeah. I, I think at the end of the day, man, the people that are, that are, that are running the show that came before us, uh, everybody at the end of the day wants a reference. You know what I mean? Something they can revert back to and, and compare to. And I think the combine's been around so long that, that a lot of coaches have references to what some numbers mean. And you start introducing a lot of these new metrics that may open up a door and show some, some, some more things that are applicable to the game and the sport. But a lot of coaches don't have a reference for it. You know what I mean? So if I tell a coach, a guy's RSI or you know, he did a gym where he was able to do this, you know, he, he doesn't know what that means. But if I tell him, you know, he ran a 4.3 at 242, he has a reference now. He can go back to his reference. He's been coaching for 20 some odd years and he can cross-reference that with specific athletes that he's trained. So I think as long as those references are there, uh, you know, those, those specific things that they test will always remain. I know, and I don't want to sound critical, but it sounds like they just turn into dinosaurs. Yeah. They're, not, they're not like the coaches that want to learn something new every day. Yeah. Now, I do think that there are a lot of coaches popping up in the NFL uh, that are being very receptive to those type of things because they're looking for advantages to win. And uh, as we all know, like especially with the 17-game season, you just, it's in the battle of attrition, man. Uh, you know, availability is winability. So I think if some coaches are starting to look into some of these other, other things under the hood of, you know, what are some things we can start looking at that, that are going to translate to athletic performance or success on the football field? But I think as soon as a lot of these coaches are able to get a database of reference in their mind of what that looks like, you know, four or five years of references in their head, they can start, you know, most, we can start spoon feeding a couple other things in there. Yeah, I'm just thinking like Moneyball with the A's 
and uh, how that turned everything around. Yes. You, you know, you're familiar with that, right? Looking at yeah. the on-base percentage. So is there a money ball element coming into the NFL? Uh, I don't know, man. I think at the end of the day, too, uh, the NFL is a business. And whenever you're talking about business, you're talking about dollar bills and you're talking about branding and you're talking about views. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure how marketable RSI and peak force is, is to a lot of fans, but I know that when you're scrolling on Twitter and you see 40 inch vertical and four, three, it gets clicks. That's yeah, that's a good point. That's a real good point. Uh, so, but during the combine talk about learning something new, as I understand it from some of the guys I talked with is that you guys do in services uh, workshops with other uh, trainers and coaches from the other teams. Is that happening this year? Uh, I don't know if it is because of COVID. Um, yeah. Now I think that's going to be, you know, specific team by team. Uh, I think we you know we have such a new staff right now. I think we got to kind of get a feel for what we got going on and figure out how we're going to do things first before we start doing that. But, uh, you know, I could definitely see us open to, 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 to reaching out and, and picking the brains of some other staffs as well. Well, it sounds like you're no foreigner to, to new staffing. I mean, from going from from Cincinnati to New York to, yeah. to Omaha to, to Baylor and South Carolina, that seems like old hat for you. So what is it that you're bringing to this new group of coaches uh, when it, they're new themselves? Yeah, uh, I think just, you know, like-minded individuals. At the end of the day, uh, we're in a people business. We're in a relationship building business. Um, so performance obviously is the key metric and winning is the key metric, but I think the underlying ability to do that is just forming relationships with players. And I think just like high character people, you get a lot of high character people in a room that are very like-minded and very driven to a specific result. Uh, and you create synergy. And I think that's powerful. And a lot of times that, you know, that's not a, that's not really a tangible thing that you can grade and, and track, but you can feel it. And I think that was one of the biggest biggest things that I got from this organization is, you know, everybody in the building seemed to be like-minded on the same page and heading in the same direction. Environment's huge and yeah. philosophy the same. So as we get closer to the season, as a strength and conditioning coach, what are your roles as you're getting toward preseason? Uh, draft is coming up, obviously. Yeah. What, what are you looking toward for the next few months? Uh, honestly, it's going to be just preparing guys to go into training camp. Uh, and then once we're getting there, just setting a good foundation to continue to build off of going into the season as well. Um, so, you know, you're looking at developing, obviously, relationships with the athletes, with profiles on the athletes and figuring out, OK, what's going to be the best, best modality to train this guy long term? Uh, you know, I'm not going to force an exercise on a guy that maybe he's only going to be able to do for four weeks. And then once we get into the season and he's got a jammed up wrist, we can never come back to it. Uh, so, you know, what patterns do we want to implement and what movements do we want to start grading and, and getting these guys accustomed to that are repeatable and standardized? Okay. Now, when it comes to training and, and lifting, there's going to be some fundamental lifts that are going yeah. to be your core go-tos. They're typically going to be uh, loading the, the vertical axial, right? It's going to be yeah. bilateral, symmetrical kind of ground-based movement. But then you've got to have your accessory lifts. My question is this, John, is, is if you were to break down percentage-wise uh, a typical program and how much of the percentage is going to be the fundamental or foundational lifts or core lifts mm -hmm. compared to the accessories? Uh, I think that's going to change. And, it's for, and it's, it's in the off-season, obviously, it's going to be much more of those core. And then once you translate into the season, the volume of that is going to start going down and then you start getting more of the accessory type stuff. And why, uh, why do you say that? 
Um, obviously, because, you know, just obviously the nervous system and, and, and how CNS taxing a lot of that core stuff can be. And you want to have a track on, you know, where that's going to push, obviously, the needle of performance, but also to make sure you don't tank a guy. Uh, and then once you get in season, you know, there's a lot of stressors. There's a stress of performance. Um, there's a stress of just playing football. Football is a very, very stressful sport. And uh, as we both know, you know, the body doesn't differentiate how it dictates stress. So the last thing you want to be doing is, is compounding that thinking, you know, oh, I got to get this guy to squat more reps. And uh, at the end of the day, you, you know, you're making him worse off. So, you know, as we get in season and those stressors start to increase, you'll kind of see that, that, that pull back in the weight room. And a lot of that accessory stuff kind of more so creep up, not to say it goes away, but it's just not as much as it was in the off season. And we both know that maintaining peak performance is not something that is attainable. You, you just can't stay yeah. in, in peak for very long. So when do you want your players to peak? I don't think there's no any, any right answer for that, uh, to be honest with you. Uh, you know, I, I heard from, from a former associated, you just want them always in some form or fashion to be trending upwards. And it's okay if they taper a little bit, it's like the stock market. Uh, you know, it's gonna go down a little bit, but at the end of the day, it's always trending upwards. Uh, and you want athletes in, in, in some form or fashion always trending upwards. And I think that's a, that's a holistic approach, not just from a performance staff, but from a coaching staff as well. Um, now you're talking about practice. You're talking about periodization of, of periods. You're talking about length of practice, density of practice. And how can we put these athletes in a position where they're consistently trending upwards? And do we have the data to support that we are doing what we said we're going to do? Great answer. I, I couldn't have... Uh... Couldn't have asked for a better answer, man. That that's fantastic. Now, obviously, you've moved around, but yeah. you're from Texas. You're a Longhorn, and uh, you, you have a little taste of mass hole in you. I get you. So that makes you dangerous. Uh, but now you're in La La Land in L.A. Yeah. yeah. Oh, look at you roll your eyes. I know you didn't mean to do that. But <laughs> yeah. So yeah. So every every time I tell someone I live in L.A., everyone's you know like I live in Disneyland or something. Like you know what what's it like? How is it? Uh, you know, I mean, I, I think I'm in the place I'm in is kind of slowed down a little bit. I'm in Thousand Oaks, so I don't think I'm getting the full LA experience much. Uh, uh, yeah, you're happy to be in Thousand Oaks. You don't want to yeah. be in downtown LA. Thousand Oaks is really nice, and yeah, and, uh, yeah it's a good area. Well, and I I can't believe that you know our time has flown here, and and you've given me some really great insight and information, and and just sharing your experience of being a player to going into the college realm and now the NFL, I know your future's bright and I just can't say thank you enough for, for spending some time and sharing all that you did with me. And awesome. hopefully, you know, with the, the season underway and uh, maybe we could check back another time and just see how things are going. Or, of course, when you become head strength coach of whatever team you want to, um, I'll be watching. Awesome, Rocky. I appreciate you, man. And that's it for another episode of the Zealous Podcast. Thank you, John Griffin and the Rams organization for sharing a little bit of your expertise and experience. And then next week, we've got Rob Campbell with the Detroit Red Wings. We'll find out what's happening in the NHL. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe, and we'll see you next week.